Hello, and thank you for finding this, the first in a series of podcasts called Leeds Castle History Highlights, celebrating the castle's 900th anniversary. I'm Robert Bathurst, and I've been thoroughly briefed by the research and curatorial teams here at Leeds Castle. And in the next 20 minutes or so, we'll be learning how some of the major conflicts at the beginning of the last millennium in England left their mark on this magical place. Normans versus Anglo-Saxons, Stephen versus Matilda, the Crown versus the Barons, and Henry I versus a plateful of lampreys. To help me negotiate this historical roller coaster, I have an expert of the period, Annie Kincaran Smith, who's curator at Leeds Castle, here to offer her insights. Hello, Annie. Hello, Robert. It's lovely to be here. The first thing I should probably mention to you all is that Leeds Castle is nowhere near the Yorkshire city of Leeds. It's in the village of Leeds near Maidstone in Kent. Uh, You probably knew all that, but uh, thought I'd save you a long train journey. Year dot for Leeds Castle is officially 1119, when the first stone castle starts to take shape, halfway through the reign of Henry I, who was William the Conqueror's youngest son. This podcast will cover the 160 years from 1119 to 1278, when the first of six queens who owned Leeds Castle moves in. Actually, let's start a little earlier with the first official record of the estate in the Doomsday Book of 1086, which runs to six lines and starts like this. Adihold the Chamberlain holds Esledes of the Bishop. It is assessed at three sulungs. Hmm. Annie, what does this mean? Who's the bishop? And what's a sulung? First of all, I'd better give you a little bit of context. After the Norman Conquest, which was 20 years before the Doomsday Survey was compiled, William the Conqueror set about redistributing Anglo-Saxon estates to the Normans who'd supported him, like his half-brother Odo, the Bishop of Bayeux, the man who'd commissioned the Bayeux tapestry, and interestingly shows Odo safely behind the lines, encouraging the Normans on. Leeds, or Esledes as it was known, was just one of the estates in Kent that William granted to Odo. In 1086, we find Odo's chamberlain, Adderhold, managing the estate, which covered a three-sulung area. That's about 720 acres. It's interesting that the compilers chose to use the old Anglo-Saxon terminology, which suggests that they had some respect for the Anglo-Saxons' administrative skills. Well, there can't have been much here at that time. So I'm picturing a small village around a timber Saxon church, perhaps a manor house on the site of what's now Battle Hall, The two islands on which the castle stands so majestically today were just rocky knolls rising out of the marshland around the river. The doomsday entry goes on to say there are 28 villains on the estate, that's tenant farmers, with seven ploughs, five mills, 20 pigs between them, as well as 18 serfs, unwaged workers. The last line of the entry simply reads, Earl Lewin held it. Annie? It's really interesting what just a few lines in that Doomsday Survey can tell us. Earl Lewin was Lewin Godwin, King Harold's younger brother, who died with him at Hastings. The entry suggests that under his ownership, the Leeds estate was being efficiently run, so when the Normans take over, everything's in place. The agriculture, the vineyard, the workers, the tenancy agreements. It was all changed at the top, but for the tenant farmers and serfs, life continued much as before although the serfs were probably enjoying better conditions under the Normans, one of whose civilising influences was to abolish slave labour in England. So, in 1086, Odo of Bayeux owns the estate and is presumably enjoying the income from all this agricultural activity? 
Unfortunately, Odo is in prison at this time for raising an army against the Pope without the king's permission. But the Doomsday Survey tells us that even in captivity, he's managed to hold on to at least some of his estates and to his position as bishop and is still collecting revenues from them. When William the Conqueror had his fatal riding accident in France the following year, he actually pardoned his half-brother Odo on his deathbed and orders his release. William also names his second son, William Rufus, as his heir, which is in preference to his eldest son, Robert Curthose, or Shorthose, presumably as a reference to his short legs. They liked their cruel nicknames back then. They really could be cruel. William the Conqueror clearly didn't rate his eldest son, but Odo of Bayeux did, and this was his next mistake. He supports Robert Curthose's claim to the English throne, and William II, as he has become, responds to this slight by confiscating and redistributing all of Odo's English property. Right, so we can now explain why the Leeds estate passes to a man who'd given loyal service to the crown. He's the gloriously named Hamo de Crevecoeur, Hamo of the Broken Heart, and one hopes he found some consolation here. The de Crevecoeur family go on to own the Leeds estate for the next 175 years. Returning to the year 1119, it was Hamo's grandson, Robert de Crevecoeur, who starts building a castle on the two rocky knolls in the marshy area around the river here. The castle he built was a modest Norman Mott and Bailey structure, the Mott being an elevated keep on the smaller knoll, and the Bailey a walled courtyard on the larger knoll, with accommodation and workshops for the castle's community of guards, craftsmen and servants. Basically, that same footprint survives today, with the royal apartments, known as the Gloriette, sitting on the foundations of Robert de Crevecoeur's Mott on the smaller island, served by a bailey-shaped courtyard of buildings on the larger island. Robert de Crevecoeur and his family appear to have enjoyed a relatively peaceful first 15 years in their newly built castle, until Henry I, who'd succeeded his brother William Rufus, possibly by having him murdered, gets his comeuppance from a plateful of lampreys, vicious serpentine fish that were once a great royal delicacy. Henry's fishy death creates a succession crisis that quickly involves the Crevecours of Leeds Castle. Henry I had fathered 22 children, but only two of them were legitimate, William and Matilda. His son William had drowned 15 years earlier in the White Ship disaster, leaving his daughter Matilda as his only legitimate heir. But Henry's nephew Stephen felt that as a man his claim was stronger than his cousin Matilda's. Both were the grandchildren of William the Conqueror. And so begins their 18-year family feud, known as the Anarchy. Nobles had to declare for one or the other, and the de Crevecours chose Matilda. Annie, it's 11.35, and it sounds like all hell has broken loose. Is that a fair description? I think it is, Robert, yes. The long civil war between Stephen and Matilda leaves England under no overall control, with barons and bishops governing their personal fiefdoms and trading their allegiances. Matilda's heartland of support is in the southwest, while Stephen's is in the southeast, which includes Kent, making Robert de Crevecoeur's declaration for Matilda a particularly dangerous one. He's surrounded by enemies. So why does he do it? probably out of loyalty to his daughter, who's married to Matilda's strongest supporter, the Duke of Gloucester. But sooner or later, Robert de Crevecoeur is going to face the consequences. And in 1139, Stephen sends a small force to besiege Leeds Castle. As sieges go, it was probably a very mild one in the context of the times. There were no detailed accounts of it, but perhaps there were a few arrows exchanged, a show of strength by the besieging force, and a prompt surrender, with the result that the de Crevecours kept the castle on a promise of allegiance to Stephen. 
So, minimal violence, unlike the Great Leeds Castle Siege of 1321, which we'll be covering in episode 3. In this civil war, after 18 years of slogging it out, in which both Stephen and Matilda were at some stage captured, they made a deal. Stephen agrees that Matilda's son, the future Henry II, should succeed him. If only they'd struck that deal at the start. But back at Leeds, the de Crevcours had escaped recriminations, remaining masters of the castle for another hundred years, digging out the moat to create the magical setting we see today, and generally staying out of trouble, until they made another fateful decision, and side with the rebel baron Simon de Montfort in his campaign against Henry III and his heir, the future Edward I, which all ends disastrously for the rebels, at the Battle of Evesham in 1265. The de Crevcours pay for this by being forced to hand Leeds Castle over to one of the king's favourites, Roger de Laban. It must have been heartbreaking for the family to give up the home they'd built from those marshy knolls, but perhaps they considered themselves lucky to escape with their lives. Annie, was the de Crevcours' decision to support the rebel cause a rash one? How close did Simon de Montfort come to removing the monarchy? He came very close. He even managed to capture Henry III and his son Edward after his spectacular victory over an army twice the size of his at the Battle of Lewes, following which de Montfort effectively ruled England for a year. But he allowed Edward to escape and felt compelled to release Henry and his autocratic style quickly alienated the other barons who deserted him at Evesham, where he meets his gruesome end. Nevertheless, I think we can say that his campaign to devolve power from the crown, however short-lived, planted the idea of parliamentary democracy in the English consciousness far more persuasively than Magna Carta had done in 1215, which is not a bad epitaph. So, in 1265, we have a new family in residence at Lees Castle, the de Labans, who have distinguished themselves as loyal servants to the crown. Sir Roger, it said, saved Henry III's life at Evesham, and his son William became commander of the Royal Navy under Edward I. Somehow, though, William de Laban gets himself into tremendous debt, 1,200 marks, however much that be. It was enough to make him appeal to Edward for help. Seizing her opportunity, Edward I's queen, Eleanor of Castile, an astute businesswoman, settles the debt for just 500 marks in return for Leeds Castle which she adds to her expanding property empire. We'll learn more about Eleanor, the first of six queens to own the castle, in episode two. Annie, thank you for helping us travel this far on our Leeds Castle journey. It's been turbulent, all these warring royal siblings and cousins forcing people like Bishop Odo and the Crevcours to take sides and then suffer the consequences. Why couldn't these royal families just get on with each other? Annie, do you think they're any better at it today? I think they're definitely better at it today. The problem during this medieval period, where there was so much conflict going on, there was a distinct lack of clarity over who would ascend the throne after the king died, and it wasn't always the eldest son who did that. So here we are in the late 13th century, and we reach the end of this episode, with Leeds Castle still in its original Motton Bailey construction and protected by its deep moat, just as the Crevcours and Leyburns knew it but with Eleanor of Castile's builders poised to transform it into a right royal residence. There are four more podcasts in this 900th anniversary series, starting with the Eleanor of Castile story, followed by the Great Leeds Castle Siege of 1321, then Henry VIII and Catherine of Aragon's stay here on the way to the Field of the Cloth of Gold, 
and concluding with the castle's reinvention under its last private owner, Olive Lady Bailey, as the ultimate mid-twentieth century party destination for her glittering guests, including Errol Flynn, Charlie Chaplin and John F. Kennedy. Annie, you'll be joining me again for episode three, The Great Siege of 1321. I'm looking forward to it, Robert. And to all you listeners, I do hope you've enjoyed this episode and that you'll join us for the rest of the series. If you'd like to rate or review this podcast, please do. We'd love to know who's listening and what you think. And if you'd like to come and see where all these events took place, Leeds Castle is ready to welcome you 364 days a year. Thanks again for listening.